If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to get right to it this morning as we continue in our series on parables, the stories of Jesus, and Jesus telling stories to teach. And we find that these parables are not as much about theology as they are sensibilities. And if we live in the kingdom of God, then what are the sensibilities of God and his reign on this earth? And here we have another parable today about the kingdom sensibility. So once you find that, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, if you would, in honor of God and his word, let's stand together as I read this aloud for us. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Did, we, did I lose myself? I am, I, I'm very, I lose myself all the time. I have to put a little, mar, a little uh, low jack on me and this, so I can whistle and I find myself. All right, the jokes, the jokes are here all week long. Okay, all right. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, another two, and another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I had not sown and gather where I had scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, will more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. All right. 
So just as we get started, there's certain stories and certain parables that are part of our formation as believers. Probably when you became a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus for the first time, there might be particular teaching or particular images with which you were given to think about your life in Jesus. And we've gone, and a lot of these parables serve as, as, uh, as kind of governing metaphors for our life in Christ. And I, I just want to say, as we come to this one today, my early days of following Jesus, I, I heard about, I heard the gospel for the first time, I was a 14-year-old, actually I was a 13-year-old, responded as a 14-year-old, and in my high school years and college years, if there was one parable that was the image that I had in my mind about my life in Jesus, it was this one. It's funny because as an adult, I have different parables that I think govern my life in Christ. That I, when I think about my relationship with Jesus, my relationship with God, there are other images that come up. But as I, as I was thinking back and doing study on this parable this week, I was shocked at just how formative this parable was for me growing up in Jesus, my, my, was particularly my high school and college years, so much so that I thought that this was in all of the Gospels. I thought this parable was in all of the Gospels, but, and this is where, look, I have a PhD in New Testament theology, so it's like, you know, I, I, I overestimated the presence of this parable. It's only in the Gospel of Matthew, and there's one kind of similar to it in Luke, but it's not the same thing. But all this to say, this parable has had a, a huge amount of for, formative value for me in my life. And I think that it's produced in a lot of ways. It's produced a lot of energy in my life. Like as I think about my life in Jesus and thinking about this parable as as kind of a governing structure of my life in Jesus in my early years, it produced a lot of energy. And I, maybe as you think about your life in Christ and you think about this parable, whether it's familiar to you or not, maybe you find that you found a lot of energy in this parable. I would also say for me in my high school and college years, that this parable also produced, I want to say a healthy amount of anxiety, but not a healthy amount of anxiety, like an unhealthy amount of anxiety. That this parable also takes a turn and that there is some fear that comes in this parable. That even as I was reading it to you, you even get a sense that the parable takes a kind of a nasty turn at a certain point. And it ends with people weeping and gnashing teeth out cast in the outer darkness. And so what I want to do this morning is just ask this question. I mean, I guess this whole idea that God has given, even as I think about my own life in Christ, God has given me skills, abilities, talents, resources. What do I do with them? I mean, those are my formative days of following Jesus. Can, can I get an amen? I mean, has anybody else gone through this? As in your formative days of following Jesus, one of the things you have to ask is, what, am I, what has God called me to do and what am I going to do? As much as I know that God has saved me, I do have this question about what am I going to do, and that produces a lot of energy. But this also this idea that God is going to call us to account for the resources that he's entrusted us with is something that can produce a fair amount of anxiety as well. So this morning, as, you, as we enter into my psyche in my early days in Christ, and I would say this, like, what... There are, by the end of this, there, there is this phrase that I, that I like to use, like, what makes you successful early in life will kill you later in life. Like, the things, the things that, you, that really moved you out when you, early, like, I think of my own competitive nature, I was super competitive 
in high school and college, super competitive. You can ask my wife, very competitive, very focused. But at a certain point, I realized what made me successful with that competitiveness is something that will kill me later in life. That it might attract people early in life, but it will drive people away late in life. And there's certain things, particular uh, sensibilities in our lives that might have gotten us to a certain point, but we have to evaluate at another point. So I want to walk that journey a little bit with this parable, um, but I also want to just ask the question, what is Jesus doing with this parable? You guys with me? Some of these things can be very uh, difficult and, and, and uh, obtuse, just a little bit difficult to understand, like, what is Jesus doing with this parable? So, are you guys with me this morning? You've experienced the same energy and anxiety that I've experienced in your life with this parable, hopefully, or maybe not. I may, look, let's just look at it and walk through it and then ask some questions about, what does this mean for me, for you as individuals, as people who have followed Jesus and put their faith in Jesus, and what then does this also mean, a parable like this, does it mean for our church, our, our body, this land, this, this facility? What does this mean for us as a body? So let's take a look. Open back up. Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. This is what we call a kingdom parable. 14 says, for it will be like a man. Now that it in there is, if you rewind back into chapter 24, Jesus is giving a number of examples of what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, we ask the question, in God's, when God is in charge of something, someone, someplace, what are the sort of things that he values in that place? When God reigns over a group of people, over a, citizenship, a citizenry, what are the sensibilities of that citizenship that come out when God is your king? When God is your king, what are the sorts of things you do? We, we always do, even as an American, maybe even this week, we're like, this is not what America is about, right? Or you, you might look at the news and you're like, this is not what America, or what it means to be an American. Or, or wherever you're from, this is not what it means to be, you know, if you're from France, what does it mean to be French? What does it mean, if you're from Germany, what does it mean to be German? If you're from, you know, the Philippines, what does it mean to be Filipino? It means you make a lot of awesome food is what it means, okay? But, so there's different sensibilities, but the question is, if God is your king and you are from the country that God overrules, what does it mean to be a citizen of that kingdom? What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? And Jesus launches in, in many ways, about with these parables. And so to ask this question, what is it like? And he says this, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. All right. Sometimes parables are, Jesus will tell, and it'll be hyperbole and a little outlandish to kind of make a point. This is not one of those times. It was very common in the ancient world. If you had a lot of possessions, you had a lot of money, you had a lot of resources, and you were going to go on a, on a couple months or even a couple year-long journey, you were going to go somewhere else, okay? It wasn't the banking as we exist, as we have it today, did not exist in the ancient world, okay? That you, you had resources, you had tangible resources. You had property, you had goods, and if you had money, you had it in coinage. You didn't have it in invisible credits somewhere on the web or on the, in the cloud somewhere. You had actual tangible coinage. 
gold or silver or things like that. And if you were to go somewhere, you couldn't just leave it in your house. You had to have people that would, you could entrust it to. You could either entrust it for safekeeping or you could entrust, if you had a business that was going, you could entrust that business to a servant or a partner. Or if you had, if you had in this case, money, you might entrust it to your various servants. And that's, this is something that would have been common in the ancient world. So he goes on a journey. He hands it over. He entrusts it. The verb there is that it's a formal entrusting. It's not just that he gives it to his servants, that he does this formal entrusting. It. So you can imagine this idea that he comes in and he calls a servant in and he kind of hands, he, he, he formally entrusts them with this, uh, these amounts. And we'll talk about these amounts in just a second. But this would have been something common in the ancient world. And, and it could have been for safekeeping and small sums would have been like, hey, here's a hundred bucks. I want it when I get back. But these sums we're going to find are sums that invite investment, all right? All right, verse 15. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. All right. So if you have different translation, if you have the ESV, it just says talents. The word there in Greek is uh, talanton. And uh, we actually get our English word talent um, from this parable. So if anybody, if anybody ever says you are talented, okay, they are, they are making a biblical illusion. Okay? That, that's, I'm not making this up. This is where it comes from. The Bible has pervaded Western civilization so deeply that when we talk about someone who has talents or is talented, it's coming from this parable. All right? It's a loan word. It's, it's a straight loan word from Greek. All right. Um, so what is, he, what is a talent? A talent, so we got to get in the Wayback Machine because all we know are, you know, ones, fives, tens, twenties, hundred dollar bills, right? We don't know much beyond that. What do we do with this coinage or with, the, with these sums? Um, one talent, to clarify, is 6,000 denarii. You're like, great, thank you, Pastor Craig, 6,000 denarii. Okay, so a denarius, a denarius is one day's wage. One day's wage. We talked about this um, with another parable, the parable of the, um, uh, of the unforgiving um, servant. Remember we talked about he was given 10,000 talents, which equals about $6 billion. It's, it's the, mo the talent is the, the highest coinage that you can find in the ancient world. Now, uh, 6,000 Denarii, 6,000 days wages, if a day's wage is somewhere between $100 and $150, if, you, if, if a day's wage is $166, then one talent is a million dollars. Okay? So Don Hagner, who writes the, the um, was one of my teachers, he wrote the commentaries in the Word Biblical Commentary series on Matthew, and he says what you need to do is you need to think about a talent as a million dollars. One million dollars, okay? So one million dollars, every, every talent. So it's, it's subject, but to be, to be accurate, somewhere, five talents, five talents is somewhere between three and five million dollars, but let's just round up, right? Five talents, five million dollars. I see the nodding. Thank you, Gene. We're, we're tracking here, okay? Two talents is somewhere between 1.2 million and two million. Let's say two. Let's just round up just for the sake of the parable. Um, and then one talent is somewhere between $600,000 and $1 million, 
let's say, one million. So you can replace the talent with million dollars. So he gave to one five million dollars, he gave to one two million dollars, and he gave to one one million dollars. Now, are those small amounts of money? No, those are not small amounts of money. So the idea is, like if you were to say, hey, I'm going on this trip, I've got, I've got, like, I've got some cash in my house, it's like $1,000, would you just put this in your house, it's 1000 bucks. just put it away? Like, look, I would say, say you're, you're giving me this money for safekeeping, I'm going to put it over here, because look, when you get back, you're going to get it back with safekeeping. When you give someone $1 million or $2 million or $5 million, that is not money that is given for safekeeping. That's money that's given, that invites investment. That's money that invites investment. Even the the lowest risk investment that you could possibly make would still earn a pretty good amount of money, right? So if somebody gives you a large amount of money, like a million dollars or five million dollars, you could do a very low level risk investment and you would make money. And the, the point of this is that these amounts that are given... In Jesus' day, if someone were to hear that someone has given these amounts of money, these are amounts that invite investment. These are not amounts that get buried in the ground. This is money that can work. This is money that changes not only your life, but other people's lives. This is money that provides jobs. This is money, this is money that invites investment. Okay, And this is why we're going to find out when the one hides the money, that, that, that's something that the master's like, I mean, you, you feel like he kind of flies off the handle at the other guy. He's, he's like, hey, look, you got back what you, what you, what you left. But the, the master is like, you wicked and slothful servant. Like, because these amounts invite investment. Okay, the be- and maybe the best, like, so if you are reading the ESV or the NRSV or the NASB, it says talents. Um, maybe the best way to put this, the NIV, anybody reading the NIV in here this morning? What does it say about the NIV? What does it call a talent? It call, well, in, that, in, the old one, in, in the new updated NIV, it calls it bags of gold. So he gives these bags of gold that are full of this coinage, millions of dollars worth of coinage. They are not insignificant sums of money. All right, verse 16. He received the five talents, five million dollars, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Okay, so let's talk about this first servant. So the ESV says that he traded with them, but basically what he does is he does some kind of business with them. The word there is that he works with the money. He works with the money. It doesn't say that he's necessarily a trader. He could have done agriculture. He, he just worked with what he had. He worked with the money. He could have done building, could have done farming. He could have lent it out to receive interest. Essentially, he worked with the coins. And he used the resources. And by doing so, it says that he gains. He doubles his amount. And what's probably the most significant thing about this in the parable, is, and Jesus' is, Jesus's, uh, hearers would have understood this, is what the man is doing is he is doing business in the name of his master. People would have known this is not this guy's money. He's a servant. What's he doing with $5 million? 
He's, he has been given this money. It's clear that he's been given these resources, and now he's engaging in business in the name of his master. He's representing his master in the world and doing business in his name. So he represents the master. He puts the resources of the master to work. And he not only retains the amount, he not only earns interest on the amount, but he makes a significant profit on the amount, 100% return on the principal. He doubles his resources. Well done. But so that Jesus makes us understand this is not simply about sums. This, is not, this parable is not about who makes the most money is most favored in the kingdom. Why do we know that? Because there's another guy who got two, right? Let's read about him. So we all, the one who had two talents made two talents more. Here, it's a different scale, different scale. He doesn't make as much, but he, makes, he doubles his amount. He does the same thing. He puts the money to use. He does business in the name of his master, and he uses the resources of the master to further whatever's going on, the interests of the master. A different scale, but the same thing, he earns a profit, he earns the interest, and he doubles his investment. So both of the first two, they receive the money, they, they're, they're happy to be tied to the name of the master, they do business in the name of the master, they take the resources of the master, and they work with the resources of the master. They actually uh, they, they, do pro- they make profit in the name of the master, and then uh, they, they give it back to the master at the end. All right, verse 18. But he who had received the one talent, he went and he dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. We've run across this idea of money in the ground before, haven't we? We talked about that the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, that were discovered in 1946, they were, they were put into the ground into these jars, into these caches, and they were found in 1946. They were buried in the ground for 2,000 years, buried treasure. And that, would, that was a common thing in the ancient world. We, read, we did a parable about the man who finds the treasure that's hidden in the field. So he's walking along doing something, he's, and he sees this, this maybe pot in the ground, and it's a hiding place, and he looks in, and there's a treasure in the... In, so this idea of buried treasure is not strange in the ancient world, and the guy doing this, this would have been a common practice in the ancient world. So the question is, what's wrong, what's wrong with him doing that with this? So his response might be in some sense legitimate if the money were given for safekeeping. Like I said, you give me a, certain, a small amount of money, I'll keep it for safekeeping, but there are certain amounts that invite investment. You'd probably put it in the bank, a simple investment, really safe investment, the amount invites investment. The fact that the servant took such a large amount and hid it implies that he was un, either, either he is lazy, okay, which later on he'll call him slothful, don't want to offend any sloths out there, okay? Um, But it also implies he simply does not want to do business in the name of the master. He doesn't want to put the master's resources to work. He's he's much better, he, he feels much safer just going about his own business. 
and not using the resources the master has given. Because if he uses the resources the master has given him, people will know that he is doing business in the name of the master. And one of the things is that at the end, he's called a wicked and slothful servant. He might be lazy, but later on he's going to say, I just didn't want to do it in your name. I was afraid of you. I didn't want to do it in your name. He simply did not want to put the resources of this man to work. Now, we'll get to the last servant in just a sec as we think about the misfire, but um, as we move forward, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So this idea that, and this is where we get an idea about what this parable is about, right? That if you look in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew, many of these parables are about, these parables about a time where a person is far away and the, the people who are waiting for him do not know when that master is going to return. Jim preached a message on the parable right before this, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, that the bridegroom was coming, but they didn't know when, and so they had to keep oil in their lamps, keep them burning, 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 right? Okay, but they, but they didn't know when he was coming, and so many of the parables in this section are about a time when the master is away, and the master will return, but we don't know when the master will return. We, no one knows the day or hour, that's a refrain five times in this section. And so this idea that, and, and really this idea that is, we, we find that these parables are about, well, what will the people that have heard about Jesus or follow Jesus do while Jesus is away, awaiting his return? What will we do? How will we be found when the master returns? Now it says that when the master returns of those servants came, he settled accounts with them. And he basically comes back and he says, okay, I gave you this money. What happened with the money? Like, give me an, let's, let's, let's settle up and let's find out. Report back in. What, what has gone on? And verse 20, in verse 20, 25, 20, he who had received five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, master, you handed over, you entrusted to me, you delivered to me five talents. And here, I have made five talents more. You gave me these five bags of gold or silver, and I have made five more with it. I've earned it. I've gained it. I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I think one of the things that we, we see a little bit easier when we read this in the original language in Greek is that the master ceases to simply talk about the servants, and it, it, we, get, we, get, we actually go deeper into this parable because we actually hear, we're privy to this conversation from the master directly addressing the servant. It's a, it, the, the case is of direct address, it's, it's the optative mood is what it is, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The servant has acted in the name of the master, so good and faithful. The servant has acted in the name of the master. The servant has represented the master. The servant has put the resources of the master to work. And the servant has had success with those resources. Good and faithful. He wanted to do business in the name of the master. That's good. He did business in the name of the master. That's faithful. He made profit on that, 
well done, right? So each of these things has something to say about the servant. Then, then it's, a little, it's a little hard because it's surprising that he says, um, you've been faithful over a little. Like, since when was $5 million a little? But I think Jesus is saying this because Jesus wants to make it clear that this parable is not actually about the money. There's things that are far more valuable than the money, but, and using the, the physical resources of the king is one thing. Now there's authority that is going to be granted to this servant over many things. And then he says, enter the joy of your master. And this probably refers not just to the emotion, like the master's proud, the master is joyful, enter into the joy. But probably the idea is, hey, look, you made $5 million extra, and I'm going to enjoy it, and you're going to enjoy it too. Enter into the joy. Like this prophet, we, we want to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate, and you're going to be part of that joy. This idea that we're going to share in the prophets, enter into the joy of your master is probably what that implies. All right. Now, let me just say, let me say this. Well, let's, let's step away from the parable for just a second, um, because we're going to see that the second guy, same thing happens with the second guy, who, the two million, he doubles that. But I, I think it's important at this point just simply to say that there is this, we wonder, okay, God gives us resources, talents, skills, abilities, whether you've developed them in your life or not, um, God has given you certain things, whether it's mental ability or whether it's the ability to do business and, and make money or whether it is simply your, your ability to gather people around and to care for people. You have abilities. And one of the things that we see in this parable is that there seems to be this, this formula, and that is this, that faithfulness begets opportunity. That God gives according to, or the, the, the master gives to the servants according to their ability when he leaves. They're already faithful. Faithfulness provides opportunity. One gets five million, one gets two million, one gets one million. But even as they work with it faithfully, at the end, God says, enter into the joy. The master says, enter into the joy of your master. That that faithfulness produces opportunity, which it gives an opportunity for more faithfulness, which produces more opportunity. And faithfulness is one of those things that when you exercise faithfulness it, with God, with your resources, there will be more opportunities. God will be faithful to provide opportunity to those who are faithful. And I think at the end when he talks about the one who has will be given more and the one who does not have even what he has will be taken from him, this, I think this is what, what he's talking about is that faithfulness begets opportunity. When you are faithful, God sees what you are doing and will say, that is someone I will entrust with more opportunity. doesn't mean that people, God will give everybody opportunity whether you've been faithful or not, but those who have been faithful, God will give more opportunity to. And that faithfulness will produce a certain amount of energy. Does it not? When God gives opportunity and you have been faithful, then there's an energy that comes from that. Is there, like, I think when in our lives, maybe our business life, our school lives, whatever it is, when we're given opportunity, it gives us, there's energy that comes from that. And as we're faithful, 
we find that energy. I think, it, when I, again, when I think about my own life of faith in Jesus, when I came to faith in Jesus, there was a tremendous amount of energy because there was a tremendous amount of opportunity. It's a brand new in, the, in faith. It's brand, there's a whole Bible in front of me. There's a whole church. There's a whole community. All these opportunities for faithfulness. And as I, I have found that as I have been faithful, God has continued to provide opportunity. And I think that's a, I think that's a fair thing to look forward to. Faithfulness produces opportunity. Opportunity produces the energy, and I think the Spirit's involved in this too, the energy of faithfulness. All right, so that, 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 that is one thing as we, at the end, I want to I wrap this up in, in light of how, how should we respond as individuals and how should we respond as a church to a parable like this. All right, look at verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. Now this response of the of the ser- this servant, the one talent servant, the one million dollar servant, is a little bit of a head scratcher, and commentators are a little split on how to handle it. Is, I guess the question is, is he speaking the truth about the master? Master, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you gathered where you scattered no seed, and you reaped where you did not sow. Is that accurate? Is, is it true? Is the master a hard man? Is he, is he harsh, merciless, and cruel? Or is he mistaken? Is the master actually generous? And the servant completely misunderstands the master. And I would actually argue that the master will, the master will give him, I, maybe I reap where I don't sow and I gather where I don't scatter seed, but he doesn't give in to the idea that he's a cruel or harsh man. As a matter of fact, it might be for this servant, this is the place where his faithfulness falls off the cliff, is that he simply does not understand the master. He perceives the master as a hard, cruel, merciless man, but the point seems to be that the servant did not think much of the master. He he certainly did not think the master was good. He thought he was hard. He thought he was harsh. And because he did not think much of the master, he did not want to act in the master's name. He didn't want to do business in the name of the master. He didn't want to be known for being affiliated with the resources of the master. He was afraid of the master or of dealing with the master, and that makes him tentative, and because he's tentative, he hides And I think this is where, so young, young Christian Craig, okay, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, God has given me certain physical abilities, mental abilities, I've been born into a certain family, I have opportunities, and I use those things faithfully in my faith, that, 
that's good. That, I, I want to I do this in the name of the Lord. I want to, whatever I do, whatever I put my hand to, I want to do in the name of the Lord, okay? But there's always this, the flip side of that question. Like, what, what happens if my response to Jesus, for some reason, I'm not able to put forth, I guess, as I thought about my own life of faith, is if I fulfill my potential, then God will be able to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's always the flip side of that question. And as a young man, filled with anxiety and fear, I'm always, I'm, you know, kind of, what's my default? I'm default, like, pretty much always angry. Um, I just have a low-level simmering anger in my life. I don't know, I'm alone in this, I know. Nobody else does this. Um, but there's, there's, a, there's a fear, there's an anxiety. I mean, there are times in my own life where those kind of things kind of go beneath the surface, and you wonder, well, what if I don't do this right? What if I don't do this well? And you read this parable, and you're thinking, well, I mean, wicked and slothful servant, take it away from him, cast him outside into the utter darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What the heck? Like, I want to love Jesus, I, I, but I didn't, I didn't do it right. Like, so there are a lot of times in my early Christian life where not only was the fuel, this fuel of I want to love Jesus, but there's also this anxiety of like, what if I do it the wrong way? What if I don't meet my potential? And I, wanna, I just want to address this for just a moment because, look, guilt and fear will fuel the tank. I, I, there, there is no, there's no doubt that guilt and fear will motivate people. If you want to get someone to do something that they don't want to do, make them afraid. Okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything new. I'm just talking about basic advertising. That's the law of advertising. You're going to go home. You might watch some preseason football. There will be advertisements on there. I, 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 I will tell you this. Spoiler alert, every advertisement is to make you feel afraid in some way. Okay? I'm just saying this. Like, I don't mean to peel back the curtain too far here, but, like, if you don't know that already, that, because that is a great motivator. And what I want to say about this is that I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here about those who love him and already are trying to follow him. Those who love him and are trying to follow him want to do business in his name. You might not do it perfectly. You might not do it. You might not do it where you double all the resources. You might not do it exactly perfectly, but you want to do business in his name. This last servant does not want to do business in the name of the master. This last servant wants to hide the master and his resources. This last servant is not an analogy to someone who wants to follow Jesus. This is someone who has heard the gospel, but has chosen not to respond to it, not to do business in the name of the master. God has given them gifts, given them abilities, but they do not want to put them to use for the kingdom. They don't want to follow Jesus. They don't want to be affiliated with Jesus. They don't want to represent or do business in the master's name. And that, I think for me, understanding this, there's a bit of anxiety that can come off. Like, this is where, again, each parable is a vignette of sensibilities in the kingdom. They're not full-blown 
uh, theology of salvation. This is where I think you need to bring other parables in and other images in. And for me as a, as a kid, there's a lot of energy that comes from, look, I want to do this. I want to be formed. I want to get skills and abilities and I want to have opportunities and do things. But at a certain point, like I said, what gets you to a certain point in life will also kill you late in life. If the nervous anxiety of your early days of life is still there at, as you are old, it will kill you. And at a certain point, we need to exchange these parables. We need to exchange the image of salvation. Yes, we've been endowed with great wealth. But even if we waste it and we come back because we want to be with the Father, then exchange that for the parable of the prodigal son. The Father will embrace you. If you want to be with the Father, He will embrace you. But understand that also in the kingdom, the sensibility is put the master's resources to work. We can't live our entire Christian life on one image. We need a whole host of images. But this one, in this case, might produce a little anxiety, but we need to confront that to a certain degree. It's not talking about those who want to follow Jesus. This is someone who does not want to represent. You guys with me on this? So this, there, again, the, the energy that comes from this parable, but also the anxiety, we need, we need to understand where those are coming from and what that's doing. All right, that, verse 28, take the talent from him, give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will be given more and will have an abundance, and the one who has not even has what he has will eventually be taken away. Again, faithfulness produces opportunity. Lack of faithfulness We'll, we'll take opportunity away. And I think in our own lives, we might see that if there are times in our lives where we're, we're not walking with the Lord, he might not give us as many opportunities. If there are times where we are walking with the Lord, he might give us more opportunities. If as a church, there are times where we're cold or we hold people back or we, or we, we uh, too, too readily cast judgment on people, God might not bring people. But if we're warm and embracing that God will bring more people to our body and give us opportunity to minister. If we lead with our anger, God might say, hey, you know what? It's okay if I just move this person over to that other person. Because you're angry. And you might not be able to do this right now. But if we lead with our joy, if we lead with, our, with our, the joy, the master's joy, that God would say, yes, enter into my joy. Let's bring people, more and more people into that. So what is this parable teaching? And again, there's a lot of, par a lot of questions that this parable brings up. And because this was formative for me, I do want to... Um, I, I want to invite you, as well as myself, to just think and just do a little bit of thinking back on your life. And not only in the past, but in the present. Like, God has given you opportunity. God has given you resources. God has given you things and people in your life. And the question is, one of the questions that this parable is really, it, it is moving us to, is just to ask the question, what am I doing with the resources that God has given me? It's a fair question, I, and I don't, want it to, I, I don't want it to invite too much anxiety. 
I would rather have it invite the energy that comes from faithfulness and ask the question, are there places where maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to or that God, I feel like God's spirit is calling me to pay attention to so that I can use this resource for his glory. Not for my glory, not for the glory of a church or an organization or the glory of, a, of my own legacy, but where can I use this in the name of my master so that I might be forgotten but my master might be remembered? I have resources. How am I using them? And again, the invitation is simply for reflection. And maybe there are things, as you think back on your life, you think, you know, God gave me this thing or this person or this amount of money, and I absolutely put it to use for the kingdom. And I, I look around, and I know enough people's stories in here to know there are so many people in here that God, when you see the Lord, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been entrusted with a little bit, and I love that you have been faithful with it. There are so many great examples of faithfulness in here. But I also know that if you're like me, there are areas maybe of our lives that we forget about or we don't look at or we make excuses for. And I also want us to invite into that question, what am I doing with the things today? I'm not, not in the past, but today, what am I doing with the things that God has entrusted me with? Maybe there's something in your life or in my life that deserves a fresh attention because faithfulness produces opportunity and you might say well i haven't really had opportunity to use this and one of the reasons might be simply because you haven't been using it and god might say well you know just baby let's start with some baby steps and i will say this if you start with baby steps, God will be faithful to provide opportunity. Just start. Just start. He will provide opportunity. You know, this upcoming Saturday morning, we're having a meeting with our ministry and facility leaders along with our staff and elders to talk about what the ministry and facility of Taft Avenue Community Church, this campus, our ministry life might look like for the next 20 years. Like as we think, what do we want this church the ministry of this church, the campus of this church, what do we want it to look like in 20 years? I, I, love, I love the story of Taft Avenue because Bob Welch donated this land back in 1962. I think Children's House was already here, but it was all orange trees. And then, so this acreage, and, and now we, in our elder meetings every month, we receive, Gordy produces these, these profit loss sheets, and the, the estimated uh, amount of, of assets on the property is over $6 million dollars. You think about the faithfulness of people who planted this church, who built this church, have a, an impact in the community to build this building so that people could come in and hear the gospel. And of course, also with the story of this church, not only is there, is there great stories of faithfulness, but there's also sad stories of split and schism, right? And many of you were around for that. And the question is, how do we go forward? How do we continue on a path of faithfulness? I'm new here, right? And so I just got here. So for me, I'm thinking like, hey, this went from zero to six million, but I'm thinking like, how do we go, or we have 100 people in here, well, how do we go to 200? 
How do we go from 6 million to 12 million of an investment on this property? Like, what do we do? I'm not saying that we need to do that, but I am saying like, what are we gonna do with what has been given? Like, and in a lot of ways, when we think about our role in, in this church, sometimes we can, we can let our own life stage dictate the way we invest. Like when we're young, we might invest, we might invest more, but later in life, we save. We save. Now, as I've done church consulting, I would also say this, that the churches that are in the worst shape have the most money in the bank because they've stopped investing. They stopped investing. God's money is in the bank. It's not out in the community. It's not out, to, it's not out at work. And I think sometimes we have to say, the church is not, the church is not producing a 401k. The church is not going to retire. You're going to retire, and you should have a 401k or whatever you're using to go into retirement. The church is not going to retire. The church is about getting into the community and working in the community. And we anticipate that as we continue to do this work, that we will, as we are faithful, there will be more opportunity. As we are faithful, there will be more opportunity. And that as we sit down and we brainstorm, we ask the question, what needs to happen on this campus and begin to prioritize those things and come up with a master plan and then ask the question, how do we fund this going forward? How do we fund the next 10 years of projects? How do we do this? And the idea is that eventually we'll be coming back to the congregation saying, look, this is the plan. This is the master plan with our facilities, our ministry people, our elders, our staff. This is the plan. How are we going to get there? And I, I want to give you guys a heads up. We don't know what that plan looks like because we got to get together. We got to talk about it. But I do want you to know that we are about faithfulness here. If there's anything that we're going to be about here, it will be faithfulness to our God to be stewards of what God has given us here so that our influence in the city of Orange will equal our footprint, our physical footprint in the city. Amen is right. That's what we need to be about. And what that means is that the church doesn't have a 401k. The church will invest. We need to put God's money to work. But again, we also need to have a plan about how that's going to happen. But I just, the sensibilities of the kingdom, we must press forward in faithfulness. So that more and more people can sit in those pews, these pews here, in that balcony, and hear about the life-transforming work of Jesus Christ. That their sins can be forgiven, that God sees them, God knows them, and that there is life in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this parable as much as this parable can be tricky and produce great energy, but also some anxiety. We pray that we might rest in your grace, but that your grace would produce in us the good works that you have prepared for those who love you. We pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would give us the energy we need for faithfulness. Father, we love you, and we ask that as we put ourselves before you, that you would be faithful to just bring to mind any maybe one thing that just maybe needs a little bit of attention in our lives, a little bit of faithfulness, and that you would give us the energy to just take a, a small a small step of faithfulness today. And as we do, Father, we will look to you to provide more and more opportunity for us to be faithful. 
Father, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.